COVID-19. Weekly Digest. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty and over the next hour we'll look back at the week that was in the world of COVID-19. On Thursday morning, Professor Luke O'Neill spoke to Pat Kenny about the latest developments from the world of science in the battle against the virus. Now, we want to talk, first of all, about vaccine news because uh, on two fronts, at least, it seems to be good. Yeah, it's good news this morning, Pat. So uh, the Oxford Group, now mind you, it's a press release, so we've got to be cautious. We haven't seen the paper yet. But they've just said they're getting a good response with their vaccine. And what they're getting is actually two for the price of one, in a way, because the vaccine is the first one uh, shown to bring out T-cells. And as you know, you need these T-cells and antibodies together to get a really good vaccine. And now they're saying they're seeing the T-cells. A good analogy, Pat, is it's as if the T-cells are the, are the bomber planes, you know, bombing a city and then the uh, antibodies of the army on the ground. They've got both. And that's a really good step in the right direction. So that's the Oxford one, which was, I think, the first one we spoke about on this programme. Uh, and we spoke to the institute in question as well. Now, what about Moderna? Yeah, that's a bit better. It's better because it's been published and we can look at it. And us scientists can then, you know, poke holes in it, I suppose. That's, that's the scientific process. That paper's come out. It's in the New England Journal, which is a very eminent journal. And again, they're seeing efficacy. They they'd 45 people were given their vaccine. They got a very good antibody response, really strong. Uh, the, the, the strength was such that it was three times stronger than someone with a severe infection, to give you an idea, just, you know, the the amount of antibody they saw with that vaccine. So again, that was a really good sign. And very importantly, Pat, they could measure these neutralising antibodies, which are antibodies that actually target the virus and stop it, you know. And again, that's a really good step in the right direction as well. So there are two companies now. It's a bit like um, the usual horse racing analogy. There's there's five horses out front, actually. These two now are, are a length ahead, I guess, of the others. Now, just in terms of timescales, and we know that, you know, America putting in uh, huge amounts of dollars for what they call the warp speed project to get a vaccine, they'll probably try to, you know, mop up as much of the vaccine that's floating around the world as possible. How long before it becomes generally available, do you think? Well, what's incredible, Pat, is they're making loads of these vaccines already. The uh, the Oxford one, AstraZeneca, are the industrial partner. They're making two billion doses already as we speak. It does take a few months to make a vaccine and obviously what's happening there is if it's successful say we get to October, November, December time with the best win in the world now that would be by the way they'll have two billion doses ready to deploy you see so so it could go really fast now again remember there's many a slip here in the vaccine business it's it's the usual analogy of falling at the last fence kind of thing so but but Fauci himself has said he's cautiously optimistic and he hasn't been quite so as positive as that in the past you see so he's looked at it scrutinised the data the Moderna one's been tested in his institute so he can see the data up close you see as well so that's a really good sign that he's now showing and he's very cautious himself, you know, so that's a really good uh, indicator, I guess. Yeah, I mean, one of the nightmares would be that it works very well, but in a fraction of the people who receive it, that it causes, you know, cardiac arrest or something like that. That would be a real downer vaccine that works but in a significant cohort has some side effect which makes it unusable. Yeah, and they couldn't tell that now. And only 45 people have been given the Moderna one, you know, and you need to get the thousands and thousands to begin to see if there's a a risk of a side effect. That's the next fence to jump in many ways. Is there any hint of unwanted effects? And we've got to keep a very close eye on that at the moment. They're optimistic there, the fact is they they think they might have seen hints of that already and they didn't. There is, by the way, some effects. I mean, you only get a vaccine if you're going on your holidays. You might feel a bit fluey after it or you might have a bit of pain in the injections. Like that happened with the Moderna vaccine. But again, nothing to worry about. That's a standard thing that happens with vaccines anyway. But the safety is 
absolutely primary in their minds and, and the uh, Chief Medical Officer last night I watched him actually on CNN he said safety first absolutely so they'll be very very cautious now looking at the safety profile of their one now, let's talk about our, our own situation where we've extended the ban on pubs opening until uh, the 10th of August. It was uh, to happen on the 20th of July. Pubs are, have gone mental about all of this. But, I mean, we can learn lessons from Melbourne. I mean, they're in lockdown again. They are. And, and I mean, again, Pat, I think that was a good move, by the way, to keep the pubs closed. It's tough on the vintners, isn't it? But uh, now in Hong Kong as well, Pat, by the way, they shut the pubs down in Hong Kong, haven't reopened them and they're shut again. And But they're compensating the pub owners, interestingly, as a special case because they're the ones being picked on in a way for, for good mm. reason, because pubs are high risk, remember. So and young people, that's the other thing that the uh, that was mentioned. Young people will gather in pubs and we now know it's spreading in young people. So it is a, a cautiously sensible thing to do. And Melbourne, absolutely. Yet again, Melbourne is in lockdown, six weeks lockdown down there but wouldn't that be terrifying if that came here mm. and it's a similar lockdown to what we had and again evidence of clusters emerging in pubs you know and other places as well there were so many clusters Pat in Melbourne that t- tracking and tracing people couldn't keep up with them that's how many there were so they could have decided that's the best thing to do is shut the place down you see so so again a salutary tale there and again sadly you know pubs and nightclubs featured in some of those clusters um, what about Sydney? Because, I mean, another big city, not a very far away from uh, Melbourne. I mean, one is in Victoria, the other is in New South Wales, but still uh, lots of traffic between them. Uh, they must be scared in Sydney that they'll have a similar. They are, and there's pressure on Sydney, Pat, to lock down, by the way, and Sydney's saying we're not, we're not quite as bad. You know, the number of cases are less there. But again, a, a good example of pubs, but a pub in Sydney, in Kasula, a place called Kasula, 28 cases happen in that pub, you see. So again, pubs are identified as a place where outbreaks can happen. At the moment, Sydney isn't as bad. They're using what's called hard ring fencing there, interestingly. So if there is a cluster in, a, say, a, a region, they lock that part down and keep a very close eye on that. And by the way, Pat, compulsory face masks in Sydney, absolutely. And they're saying, if you don't put your face mask on, we could end up locking down like Melbourne. So that's a good, I guess they're using Melbourne as a, another example of what not to do, kind of, you know. So Sydney are, are watching Melbourne very closely. Now, uh, mandatory hotel quarantine is accepted as one of the biggest factors in helping uh, Australia to flatten the curve. But then you had a case of a security guard working in a quarantine hotel being infected. And of course, that could lead to infection in everyone who's there. Well, again, great science fact. You see, there's, there's great science in Melbourne, by the way. There's fantastic immunology there. And I've collaborated with people in Melbourne. They jumped on this and said, where are these cases? And where have they come from? And all that, all those questions. Massive detail. It's a great report on this. And sadly, Pat, one came from these hotels where they're quarantining people. So they had a policy of sticking people in quarantine in a hotel. Lo and behold, there were 60 cases attached to two of those hotels. Isn't that, you know, rather disturbing? And then secondly, you're right, a security guard working in the hotel, picked up the infection, went home and began infecting other people and they did their best obviously to contain it but there you have an example of quarantine not working you know and and of course that's what this is what uh, we've heard here as well Leo Racker himself said there were issues with quarantine in Australia that's what he was talking about so even though you might quarantine people you can't keep it absolutely watertight there's a risk of it escaping from that facility I guess where lots of these people are staying I suppose Now uh, the lockdown that they have in Melbourne I mean there's a, a Q&A which you've sent me you know, uh, what does lockdown look like? Can I have visitors to my house? Can I see my partner? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's like we were in that. And this is the worry part. Nobody, nobody wants to go back to that, do they? And it's just like the lockdown we had, and all those things are banned. Basically, houses mixing is banned, for example. You know, uh, slightly looser. Hairdressers are allowed to stay open. That's one thing they've kept open. Interestingly, uh, golf and tennis is allowed. Other sports are not. So it's slightly different. Weddings max of five people. So it's a bit like we had. You know, one that I mm-hmm. found really good was they're allowing people to meet someone if they're in an intimate relationship with them, um, and they've said in classic Australian way. There's no bonk ban, right? That they've said that. So in other words, you can meet your your partner, you know, which which was different during our lockdown. So the slight differences, but I'd say it's ninety percent the same as what we went through. Now, can you imagine, Pat, if in Dublin we're told a six week lockdown, almost as punishing as the one we had, that would cause consternation, wouldn't it? So again, we've got to look at this very closely, I guess. Yeah, um, the the publicans, as I say, and their representatives are going crazy. They're saying like we're not responsible for the increase because we were closed. But that's not the point. Um, it's the environment that a yeah. pub creates. Uh, it's okay if you've got a, a big terrace where you can have tables out there and the sun is shining as it would do in Australia during the summertime. Uh, but here, you know, most of our small pubs are, you know, badly ventilated, uh, small, intimate places, which is their charm. Yeah, But yeah, of I course, mean, they they would be petri dishes for, for an infection if someone came in who was infected. But as someone said, but it's like God's playing a trick on the Irish because we can't open pubs because these are the high-risk places for definite, you see. And, uh, and you're right, I mean, if a pub reopens, they might try social distancing, but young people will gather there. And then alcohol decreases, you know, all these behaviours get worse and people stop observing the regulations. And that, that's why it's dangerous because of the alcohol really is one big issue, obviously enough. And then and the fact that there are places where people will, uh, will break the guidelines. I suppose not follow them and again the, the Australians know this well, as well as we do they knew full well if they kept the pubs open they would be so- sources of clusters as well with the best will in the world mm-hmm. Now let's move on to another story and that is a story of autopsies um, and these autopsies uh, autopsies were done in different places but they have revealed surprising findings about the brain the lungs and the heart Exactly. If anybody doubts, Pat, this, what gets me about this at the moment is people say, oh, look, it's not that serious and let's keep things going and a few people might get infected and so on. Every piece of science tells us this is a very serious disease, nothing like any virus before almost, you might say. And one piece of evidence is autopsies. Now, autopsies are a great thing to do if you're a, a pathologist because you find out why somebody died. You see, obviously, we're doing a very careful autopsy. And sure enough, they've done loads and loads of autopsies on people who've died of COVID-19. And now we know what they've died of in great detail. And the one fact Pat is clotting that keeps coming up this is a very strange virus because it makes your blood clot and even yesterday I had a meeting yesterday with people in Tala because we've got a collaboration with the hospital there and they say they can take a blood sample from someone with COVID and the blood starts to clot it's a very sort of dangerous virus in terms of blood clotting and lo and you, behold You mean in, in the test tube or on the, pe- the Petri dish it would actually visibly before your eyes clot They can see the, the sample they taken from Exactly. Little bits of clots can even be seen in these blood samples, you know. So there's something very interesting, at least scientifically, about this virus that promotes blood clotting. And this had been suggested in many other studies, of course, but these autopsies confirm this hugely. Blood clotting is a massive feature of this disease. So if if you cut into someone's liver or or rather in their lungs or their heart or their brain who's died of this disease, you'll see loads of clots all over the place. And that's what's probably what's killing people, by the way, because the clots are are stopping blood flow into these organs and the organs then fail, Mm. you see. So that's become a real sort of important part of this disease. So if you did take um, warfarin or whatever, uh, anti-clotting agents, uh, it would... 
enhance your survival prospects. Yeah, that's the good. The good news is now this information is extremely important because can you put people on anticoagulants, as they're called? And they're doing that. Heparin is one they use, for instance, and they're trying that now in patients. In fact, it's become a standard in some hospitals that you give them heparin early on. There's a risk there, Pat, because you might promote bleeding. That's that's the other side of this, by the way, because Mm. if you stop clotting, you might create bleeds, and they're very cautious then. It's not not as simple as give someone an anticoagulant and then they'll be fine. It's the dose, it's the timing. Very careful analysis is happening now. This is one reason, Pat, by the way, why they think the death rate might be going down a bit because they're deploying anticoagulants more in, in the intensive care and then this may be a way to save people. So it's very informative in terms of you know how, how to manage these people clinically. Now, there's other information uh, about what they expected to find in the heart, what they expected to find in the brain and then did not. Yeah, this, this is very interesting. So they found, like, if it, usually when you see clots, you see inflammation, which is what I work on. You see lots of the immune system is in there and it's all very damaged, the tissue. They didn't see that much inflammation. Instead, they just saw the clots. So it's almost as if something specific is happening here where clots are being triggered and then those clots begin to clog up the blood vessels. And then, of course, you get less oxygen into the heart or the brain. And, and the real worry, Pat, actually, is clots in the brain. And they've seen these in these autopsies. And, of course, clots in your brain are like a stroke for a start. And, and there's, there's evidence of that and secondly you know there's there's lots of reports now of delirium and brain effects and that's probably because of tiny clots in certain parts of the brain causing these symptoms I suppose and even more worrying Pat this may be an early thing in other words people even without symptoms they're they're obviously projecting this they they haven't done autopsies on people haven't died obviously but but they think this clotting might be an early event and therefore might begin to cause damage even before you have symptoms so again it's kind of a very important work in progress to sort of uh, pin that down I guess. Mm. Now, what's the importance of early oxygen? Exactly, yes. So, so clearly, if it, of course, the big problem here is the, lo- the focus on the lungs and people can't breathe properly and can't get enough oxygen through their lungs. So therefore, you put them on ventilators, obviously, and using correct ventilation then helps them to get more oxygen into your body. Because obviously, if there's tiny clots happening, not enough blood gets into that tissue and not enough oxygen gets absorbed by the tissue. If you pump oxygen in, you might be able to get through that somehow, you know, and restore oxygen levels. And, and of course, that's what they're doing in hospitals and using different ways to do it. The other things happen, Pat, is you needn't go on a ventilator. You can have a special other device called a CPAP that can get oxygen into your body quickly you know so again it emphasises I guess the importance of oxygen as a way to treat it the other great thing Pat that was interesting was um, in the lungs they find a cell type called a megakaryocyte there's a new word for you we see mm. now, now megakaryocytes uh, make platelets and platelets are what form the clot and lo and behold all these platelets are going in there and the virologist the, the pathologist who saw that first that they'd never seen megakaryocytes in lungs of people with a disease before and that, that was a real head scratcher they went back to the 1960s and there's a couple of isolated reports of dengue virus causing this. So, so it is a, has been seen with other viruses. But mm. this seems to be a specific feature of this virus. It's a clever little bugger, isn't it, this virus? Devious, it's yes. I know, that's <laughs> very, and, and very Devious. dangerous as well. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, our next topic is about uh, transmission through the air and whether or not just ordinary speech creates aerosols which can infect. Because, you know, you wonder about, yes, it's possible if you're close to someone that they breathe out something, you pick it up. But, you know, is there enough of a viral load for you to get it? What is the WHO concluding now? Well, again, as we said last week, about 237 scientists wrote to the WHO and said, make a clear statement on this. It is transmitted through the air. In other words, not just droplets, it floats on the breeze. WHO have said, yes, they, they think there's evidence of this. They haven't been definitive yet, though, interestingly. I'm, I'm waiting for a very clear statement from them because that, that will change things, Pat, in many ways. Because what, te- what this research is telling us is, if you speak, Pat, you will release around about a thousand little aerosols come out of your mouth. Each of those will have potentially a virus in 
them and they've actually created these aerosols and labs with the virus that can go inside the aerosol it can float in the breeze it can float pat metres away from you that's the first thing so it's not just like the two metre thing it's not, it's not as straightforward as that and now it's in, on the breeze and if you haven't got correct ventilation and you're not wearing masks this is a big risk and, and when the WHO makes this statement Pat it will have consequences because it makes ventilation really really important now to get the air out quickly you know but otherwise it's just floating like a feather I suppose in, in the air and, and people can pick it up and lots of science is supporting this and these scientists have said you guys need to keep up with the science they're, they're quite hard on the WHO they're saying you got to keep up with the science you're not keeping up with it you know now again the science is coming thick and fast but you'd hope they would be on top of this and that's what drove that letter to say look all these reports are coming out of this you need to change that uh, that guideline and the examples uh, the, the the choir in a place called Skagit Valley in in Washington state uh, another case in Guangzhou in China, which was uh, in a restaurant, I think. And then there was a tour bus in Hunan prom- province uh, where uh, eight of the 49 people on the bus were infected by one passenger. You know, and he that passenger wasn't sitting beside everybody. That's right. And there were people five metres away on the bus from that person who was the super spreader. And they did a very good study that they made sure that those people uh, didn't use the same handles. They monitored them. They came in a different door on the bus even. So the only way those people could have got infected was through these aerosols because they're too far away for a droplet to hit them, you see. And that, that's part of the evidence. A great study, Pat, showed that uh, they created these aerosols in the lab with a virus in it. That's a pretty dangerous thing to do. So these people are all suited up, obviously. It lasted in the air for 16 hours, Pat, these little aerosols just floating around the room and that just shows you how long those aerosols can last. One good bit of news was UV light kills the virus in those aerosols. I did a study with sunlight and within six minutes 90% of the virus had been killed. Now this is interesting because that's why outdoors is good. So it looks like sunlight can actually sort of you know kill the virus in the aerosols and that's a good thing and that supports the notion of staying outside. But of course inside there's no sunlight and, and the thing could just float in the air. Yeah, you'd wonder then about uh, having uh, UV lights and I know uh, <laughs> you'd be able to see the brass straps through the, the T-shirt if you have UV lights in the in all the bars and nightclubs uh, because they used to be used for recreational purposes. Uh, but a certain um, wavelength of UV light uh, kills the bug. So is yep. that the future? That's right. And in fact, I think this is going to become very important for schools, Pat, because if, if this is a statement of fact by the WHO and the science is there, when we open the schools again, we've got to have good ventilation in the schools for definite. Now, schools might have issues with that because they haven't got ventilation, many of them, and it's expensive to install these highly effective ventilators. But UV might be a second option to, to have occasional pulses of that, they're suggesting, for example. And, of course, mask wearing. The teachers will have to wear masks, you see. Uh, that would protect them now. So maybe even special surgical N95 masks to stop them getting infected if this thing's in the classroom. And these classrooms, as you may well remember, can be very stuffy places, and that's an ideal place for these viruses to float on the breeze. So I think there will be a big debate about this. Watch when the WHO makes this definitive statement. That's going to open up the debate how to reopen schools again safely. Uh, Finally, we want to talk about Japan and masks and um, really a tradition of mask wearing. Yeah, that's a great study about it. Why are the Japanese so compliant when it comes to masks? And they are extremely compliant in Japan. Of all the countries in the world, they've been wearing masks for, for decades, really, you see. So so the question is, why is that? Uh, one is a point of honour, Pat. You, you know, the, the, the number one concern in Japan is always not to harm someone else. So if, if a new drug is to be launched in Japan, they're the most stringent with safety because they don't want to, you know, launch a drug that might harm anybody. Even if there's a tiny chance of harming someone, they want to prove that drug. So many drugs aren't approved 
approved in Japan because of a side effect that's more acceptable elsewhere. So the Japanese have had a culture of, you know, not harming others. And hence, they wear masks. That's why they wear them. And they've got a long tradition. And in fact, uh, it began in some of their religious ceremonies. They wear masks as part of that. This is over the you know, hundreds of years. Paper masks were part of a ceremony to stop people breathing in, in, on certain things. And that was seen as a bad thing during a religious ceremony. And then the big one was the 1918 pandemic. About half a million people died in Japan of that. That was especially badly hit by the big, you know, the Spanish flu. From that moment on, they began wearing masks, you know, in, in huge numbers. So they've got a long, long history of it and they really should lead the way. In other words, they learned from that 1918 pandemic that masks were great. And now look, it took us decades to catch up, didn't it, in a way? But the Japanese were, were kind of there first. Mm. And they have masks that make, make you look better. They, they make your do. face look slimmer. <laughs> well, it's a big industry. There's loads of companies making masks. There's 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 one there's the, I think I'll be in uh, Masuka if I'm pronouncing it correctly. That's all about mask beauty. They see it as a beautiful thing to wear them. There's other masks called patriot masks because you're showing patriotism by wearing them. There's masks that will cool your face in the summer. Isn't that marvelous? But in, in, in the hot weather, and I bet people love this. But they've got ones that uh, they they'll prevent your glasses fogging up, and that's obviously an issue for people with glasses. So they thought of everything. The Japanese, in many ways, as to why we should uh, make mask wearing mm. easy. All right, you're listening uh, to the Pat Kenny Show on News Talk, and I am talking to Professor uh, Luke O'Neill. Some of the questions coming in, uh, Luke, a very interesting one here. Uh, this virus and the way it operates, could something good co- come from this for haemophiliacs who cannot clot? Good Lord, that's a great question. Absolutely. But it's very interesting what it's doing to clotting. We, we don't know the mechanism of that, by the way. Hence, we need the research. My lab is actually doing a bit of work in the clotting business because you'd love to know more about that, wouldn't you? Here's a very effective way to make blood clot, and, and maybe there's a protein it has or some molecule it's making to cause clotting to happen. So that's a really good one. Yeah, that, that, could, that could be a positive out of this, I guess. This is a, another interesting one. Can you ask Luke if he will be taking the vaccine himself and giving it to his kids as soon as it becomes available or will he wait to see how others fare? No, I would take it now, Pat. If someone walked in, <laughs> I, I would volunteer for that Moderna trial or that Oxford trial right yeah. now. I'd volunteer for a hand I, up yeah. immediately. Yeah. Um, what about having a shower in shared facilities like campsites? Now, a lot of the, the, your activities are open air, but then there might be a shower block. Well, interestingly, Pat, in, in Melbourne, they've shut down the swimming pools. Um, and the reason is because people gather in those kinds of blocks before they get to the pool. They have a shower, say, or, or they gather a lot, you know. So again, anywhere crowds gather for more than a few minutes, I suppose, that are enclosed with bad ventilation, they're high risk. So if there is a shower block in that situation, you'd want to avoid it. The usual, you know, avoid the three C's is the idea. And, and, and sadly, those places could be sources of infection. Another one says, what made the Spanish flu go away finally? That's a fantastic one. We know exactly why it went away. Well, first of all, they began adopting social distancing and all the measures we were doing in quarantine. So that, that began to work. And, and that's the part of the evidence we have for why these things work, by the way. But it came back uh, in a less virulent form. So there was th- two waves of it. And one of the waves that, that came, uh, it was less dangerous. It mutated into a less dangerous form. And that was another reason why it began to go away. That's a hope with this one that it might turn into something less virulent, as we say. You never know. The signs it isn't mutating as fast, on the other hand, you know. Of course, the risk is it can mutate into something more severe. And the second wave of flu was actually was a wave that really was severe. And then the next wave was less, you know. So it was partly because it got less dangerous as time went on. Is it OK to sterilise the reusable masks? The, these are what they call the surgical masks, not the N95 ones. You know, the, the, the ones that you buy for 30 or 40 cent 
and a lot of people are wearing, is it okay to sterilise them? Now, I don't know what they mean by that. Hang them out in sunlight? Yeah, it's not recommended. They're a bit flimsy, those ones you see, if people will know. Mm. They're not, not as robust as the, as the cotton ones, obviously. So that, that, that's not recommended, I don't think. Unless the one is slightly moral. But you've got to use your common sense in a way. If the mask looks pretty intact, and then you can wear it again kind of thing. You know, if it's, if it's looking a bit damaged or maybe the, the material is thinned a bit, then you wouldn't want to wear it again. Uh, can you ask, Luke, what happens to the clots in patients who survive COVID? Do those clots disappear? And is it the clots that cause the breathlessness and the other symptoms? Exactly. They think the breathlessness precisely is the lungs being clogged up with clots. That's a big factor here. And then you're not going to have oxygen and you begin to get a bit breathless because obviously the body can sense oxygen you see in its blood and begins to make you breathe more or whatever it might be and try and get more oxygen in. So so that's what's happening there precisely. The clots are the, the cause of the breathlessness. And then the tissue begins to die, Pat, as we know, if you, if you tr- decrease oxygen oxygen supplies to a tissue and after a heart attack for example big clot the heart muscle begins to die because not enough oxygen to keep it going because all life you know we need oxygen so that's a key aspect of many of the symptoms of this disease really Another one says it's heartening to see masks being made mandatory in retail settings but I'm not sure why retail has been singled out in particular I'd like to see this uh, extended I think in Britain they're talking about any indoor uh, situation although they're resisting offices uh, on the basis that uh, you know you're not you're going to be with people for eight hours of a working day and that masks then therefore in some way would be ineffective. Don't get the logic there. Uh, but anyway, that's the, the situation in the UK. Um, you can comment on that, Luke. Also, someone wants to ask you, uh, how safe do you consider flying and would you fly yourself? Well, that's the big question we have at the moment, but isn't it about flying? I still wouldn't fly, to be honest, I must say myself. I mean, first of all, I don't need to fly luckily. I suppose if you have essential travel, you might take a plane then, you know, because you have to go and see a relative or something like that. And then you might justify it. But overall, if you, do, if you can't justify it, do not fly is the, is the absolute guidelines. I mean, the airlines will say, oh, the planes are safe. I still want to see good evidence for that. I'm not saying there isn't evidence, but you'd like to see scientific evidence to show that flying is now a safe thing to do. So it's still up in the air, literally. There's a good phrase for you uh, in terms of whether we should fly or not, I suppose, you know. Uh, okay to share a car if windows are open and everyone has a mask on? Absolutely. That's fine, in fact, Jen. That, that's that's a safe environment because there's a good... Remember, ventil- masks and ventilation are a great combination because the, the breeze is blowing the thing away and then your mask is stopping you giving the virus to someone else and vice versa. So in any situation where there's good ventilation and mask wearing, that's a really low-risk environment. Now, now, that could become pubs, but eventually, remember, now, you know, the trouble is you don't want to be sipping a pint in a gale either. But if you've got great ventilation, and especially with this aerosol thing, that decreases the risk dramatically of many different things. Uh, And a final one. uh, Can you ask, does T-cell immunity last and how does it work? Because, you know, there were stories during the week of the immunity that is conveyed by the antibodies not... Uh, being prolonged. It does, absolutely. So the, the, there's two types of cells. Actually, the, the B cell makes the antibody and the T cell is the thing that kills the virally infected cell. They both turn into what are called memory cells, which means they can remember for a long time. I'll give you one example, Pat, actually, with uh, with MERS. Remember, that's another coronavirus. They were finding T cells four and five years after infection sit in those people. With the 1918 flu, this is for any nerdy immunologists out there, with the 1918 flu, they found T cells 30, 40 years after the virus had infected you and they're ready to go again, you know. So this this is why the immune system is so special. You get special troops that remember, you know, and then they protect you yeah. next time. And, and T-cells are very much part of that. And it could explain why uh, older people were not as susceptible to the Spanish flu. It was mostly the young uh, because maybe those older people had survived an earlier bout of something similar and yep. 
had their defences. Yeah, precisely. And then the other thing that's good, Pat, is like another study came out a couple of months ago. There's this hetero, what's called heterologous protection. So other coronaviruses look similar to SARS-CoV-2. We've T-cells to some of those. Young people, for instance, might have had a cold. They'll have T-cells to that cold virus, but it's similar to COVID-2. And that T-cell can now beat up COVID-2 as well, you see. So, so really the T-cell is such an important part of our, our, our immune system. Yeah. Actually, that brings me to another point. Uh, we, we were talking to Dr. Ray Wally and he was saying that people are coming uh, to the doctor surgeries who have all the symptoms of COVID-19, but have tested negative. And it could be that they've, you know, would have tested positive if they had an earlier test and have, you know, moved on. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, any evidence about that, that people can have COVID-19 but will test negative. Well, it's the problem is the antibodies because it, it does look as if the study after study coming out, part of the antibodies waning. That seems to now to be a consensus on this. Mm. If you have severe disease, you'll have more antibody and then you might have them for a few months is the idea, I suppose. But many have, you know, asymptomatic or, or, or milder symptoms. The T cell may be different. We're now looking to see if we can measure T cells in all these people and signs are they're more prominent. So maybe the T yeah. cell will save us in the end. In other words, they're hard to measure though is the problem. They're very difficult to measure T cells. They're a cell type in your body. It's not like measuring an antibody. So, But now many people are looking at T-cells to, to try and address that very question. Yeah. And the final point, and it's it's only a theory that I've, it's come to me just in a, in a flash. I mentioned it before that GPs might be less susceptible to COVID-19 because they've had every coronavirus of the common cold in their surgeries for years and years and years and years and the, what did you call it a hetero heterologous it's called heterologous heterologous protection. yeah exactly. they may have heterologous protection they might and guess who might as well Pat teachers because teachers are constantly exposed to colds in the classroom so maybe that's a good thing we may get more information on that and in many ways if you took teachers now and measured their T cells who knows they might have lots of T cells to coronaviruses and that might give them a tiny bit of protection which would reassure them so that's why it's so important to, to measure these things I think that was Professor Luke O'Neill's speaking to Pat Kenny on Thursday. Coming up next, Henry McKean reports on the delayed reopening of the pubs. Welcome back to Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty. It was confirmed during the week that the pubs will not open on Monday as planned. Henry McKean went out to gauge the reaction of publicans and the public. Hi, I'm Andrew Kyo from Peter's Pub in Dublin 2, the corner of South William Street and South King Street. At the moment, and uh, your pub is boarded up, isn't it? Yes, we've been closed since March. We haven't opened, we haven't had a chance to open. We were hoping to open next week, but unfortunately we're not open. It's very disappointing, very disappointing for ourselves. We've done a lot of work while we've been closed. We were gear, all geared up to be organised to open next week. My staff were all geared up. They were excited to be coming back to work. And I'm very disappointed for our customers too. I think a lot of our customers speaking to them and keeping in touch with them over the last few weeks, they were all dying to get in and have a pint in town and see what's going on and touch base and meet up with one another. Do you think it's very unfair that um, many, many pubs across the nation can remain open? They can remain open. That was probably uh, a customer there hoping to get a pint. Um, but, but you can't, just because uh, they were serving food or were saying they were serving food. Well, I think the guidelines were set out and probably set out extremely well and well thought out. Uh, around the gastro pubs, it's disappointing for wet pubs not to be open. But the gastro pubs, the spirit of the thing was restaurants. People with restaurant certificates and gastro pubs would be open. There were people around town abusing the guidelines because they weren't actual signed into law. They were being abused by coffee shops and some restaurants were self-serve working as pubs. 
and a lot of coffee shops around our area were trading as pubs and in the spirit of things that was really against the spirit of things. The hour figure is going back up and it's very, very disappointing for us and for our customers and especially for our staff. When the government announced yesterday uh, that you can't reopen, how did it make you feel and did it take you off guard? I always thought there was, I didn't take me off guard, I thought there was a possibility because the hour figure had changed, I thought it was a possibility it might happen. Uh, I was gutted, really, really gutted and you know, when you look at the we're third of the year we're going to be closed for and I think that's 40% of our trading is gone this year that's a shocking figure to have to deal with and for an awful lot of people including ourselves it'll put them under a lot of pressure but it'll be detrimental to some operators in the business which is shocking you know and I feel very very sorry but I really feel for the people who love to come to pubs and come to good pubs it's very very disappointing for them. And uh, the government is saying there's no guarantee that pubs will reopen on the 10th of August. How does that make you feel? It's really desperate, really, really bad. I suspected by the wording this morning, early this morning, that there was no guarantee we'd be open on the 10th. I think we'll have to work hard. But I think we're, the good pubs in town are capable of social distancing and behaving properly. So I think it's something that we'll have to review and work hard on putting measures in place that we to guarantee we do get open on the 10th. And you sent away kegs today, you didn't want them? I had five or six deliveries coming in this morning and I could have taken them in but I felt there was a doubt about the 10th of August and that's why I refused the deliveries this morning. Well the government right to delay the reopening of pubs that don't serve food? Absolutely. I pre in fact I wouldn't have opened them up at all. They've come more forward than they, um, they had intended and I think that might have been a little bit of a, not mistake, but probably just came on the scene a little bit too quickly with them. Uh, Hugh Harrigan, uh, the Boarshead Bar and Lounge here on Capel Street in Dublin 1. Hugh, you're a well-known publican. How long have you been in the industry? Uh, 26 years this August. So, like that, coming to Capel Street in 94, we've seen an awful lot of changes, but this year we didn't see, think we'd see these changes coming. You serve food. I just saw some gorgeous toasties there. Have uh, you know? They were more than toasty. They they were substantial. You could say stews they were stews and prep sandwiches. Yeah. What about the pubs that did the you could say honourable thing? They didn't reopen. Um, they felt they're not restaurants, and now they have to delay it further. It's the 10th of August, and now they're, they're being punished. I feel really sorry for them. Um, originally, we weren't getting to open ourselves until the 10th of August or 20th of July and because we serve food we got open which we were delighted to get open but we opened on the basis that we would carry the guidelines through to get the rest of the pubs open. Uh, I feel we've done that and we've worked very very hard. Um, it was a massive blow to us last night to the industry not to get the pubs reopened. So it is a massive blow. You've a lot of friends who just serve pints. They can't reopen. What is the feeling today? Well, you know, a lot of us spoke among ourselves last night that pubs that are open. And we were very, very disappointed for the people that's not open because we worked hard to get them open. Now, both myself and my wife are from uh, Cavan. So we would have a lot of pub friends in the pub business down in Cavan and through Longford, all the different counties that doesn't serve food. And they were really looking forward to getting open and they'd be in touch with us and they were getting their staff back. And we'd be filling each other in on tips, you know, to get open and how to get our staff back and getting training. But to be told four days beforehand 
you know, especially when we look, worked so hard for these lads, um, in a way you kind of feel guilty that we're open. But, you know, I don't, like, our occupancy here is about 160 people. Now, I'm down to about 50 people, 52 people. And we've been going by the guidelines. We're turning away good business because we're here going to the guidelines. And I don't feel, I know this is a public health issue, but if we're running our businesses properly, you know, it's, the pubs have been punished and they're not even open, but the big issue which I have and which all publicans always have is off licenses. Like, it hasn't been highlighted yet, but the trend is now at the moment where all the young people are booking Airbnbs and they're having parties. And this is going on throughout the, throughout Ireland. Like, we're closing, our official closing time is a Friday, Saturday night is 12.30. We're closing at, 12, uh, at 11 o'clock. Last night it was 11.30 closing. We closed at half 10. You know, and there's people asking there for more drink, but we adhere to the guidelines because our kitchen closes at nine o'clock. So we can't have premise, people on the premises uh, and after 105 minutes. Like I think you've seen there today, you met a Garda walking out the door when you were coming in. So we're, they're coming around checking us, which is good for us. Uh, it's keeping us in tow and it's good for the, for the customer as well to see that, that they're doing their job. But it's, it's the off-license sales and like this, the off-license have created, created a bad drinking environment in this country. And unfortunately it turns back that the pubs get the blame. Like from the, from the day that the, the grocery order uh, was introduced, who was introduced by our current Taoiseach, where you can sell drink below cost price. Like it's ridiculous. Like you're going in and buying a case of beer for 20 euros. 20. Now they're not going to, and you're going back to an apartment. They're not going to leave four or five bottles of beer behind them. You know, and you're going in now into these clusters, in these apartments or in these Airbnbs. Airbnbs are the trend where they're booking them. They're booking them in every county in Ireland. And they're coming in from the suburbs and booking them in the city. It's really tough because, you know, they've done deals with the bank get, about getting reopened. They have done deals with their suppliers and bringing their staff back by training. And it's a big blow and it's a big blow to the industry. And, you know, it's... If, like, if we're running a controlled environment, like, that we're running our businesses properly, where there's, people are staying there 105 minutes, they're having their food, like, we are a professional organisation, and we'll be running, but, like, you're coming in now, you're going to have August Bank Holiday weekend, which is a massive weekend in Ireland. Pubs are closed. So what's the drinking going to be like? And you have Galway races coming up as well. And, uh, and I'm sure if you check a lot of the Airbnbs, they're all booked up. And they're all going to Galway races, even though it's behind closed doors. So it's all going to be house parties. My view on wearing masks in shops, I think it's the future. We have every other country in the world doing it. I don't think Ireland should be any different. With pubs reopening, um, I think it's everyone needs a livelihood at the end of the day. Um, when everything goes back to normal, a lot of local businesses are going to be gone. And I think that this country needs to start looking after its own. I'd happily wear a, a mask in a pub. Um, but so leaving my table, out to the bathroom, coming back in, I'd happily wear a mask, not an issue. I think in small groups, I think it's healthy. Um, I think pubs just have to realise as well that they should uh, stick to the hour and a half and move the people on as quickly as possible. 
and make it as safe as possible without damaging the economy as well at the meantime. time. I think we should take the UK and the US as an example of why we should keep on wearing masks and why we need to, whether it's at the expense of the Vintners Association, whether it's at the expense of shops, anywhere, people is what matter and we should be wearing masks wherever we go. In terms of people hosting parties under the, under the radar, I think that's just a job for our guardie and how there should be a stronger crackdown and stuff like that. What about pubs that don't serve food? Do you think they've been, as Michal Martin has said, it's a hammer blow for them? Well, yeah, it is. I can understand it from a commercial point of view, but I also think like it's a huge risk, people gathering in big groups, and I also think that a lot of people aren't going to flock back to the pubs when they reopen. Do you think by, in a way, closing down house parties and the pubs not reopening, we're going to see more a kind of illegal gatherings? You're appealing to people's common sense and we shouldn't have to put in laws or make things mandatory. People at this stage after three months will should really realise what's going on around them, you know. That report from Henry McKean. Coming up next, we hear how New Zealand's response to COVID-19 compares to Ireland. Welcome back to Weekly Digest on News Talk. I'm Shane Beattie. On Thursday afternoon, Ivan Yates spoke to Professor Michael Baker, Professor of Public Health at the University of Otago, about what Ireland could learn from New Zealand in terms of their response to COVID-19. Well, as you know, uh, New Zealand has been put forward as best in class, having crushed the curve, having zero cases for 75 days. Um, and... Uh, Obviously, there are a group of medics in this country and public health experts all saying we should not proceed with lifting our lockdown until we get down to zero cases. Professor Michael Baker, Professor of Public Health at the University of Otago, joins us on the line. Uh, Michael, welcome to the programme. Um, Can I ask you, first of all, um, what, what are the restrictions in New Zealand at the moment? There are no restrictions. Um, we're back, basically back to business as usual at the moment. Um, I mean, I should say the one restriction, of course, is the borders. Um, so we have um, strict quarantine for people coming into the country. Um, of course, you can leave very easily if you if you wish. And and how has it affected your exports, your trade, your tourism? Uh, exports, trade is um, absolutely normal. It hasn't been affected, but. Um, tourism, of course, um, has stopped largely international tourism uh, because, and in fact, arguably, our current policies don't really affect that because the international um, volumes of tourists are still very low, and of course, the cruise ships have, co- have stopped coming. Right, and 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 do you uh, have any prognosis for the future of 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 where you go from here? Because I suppose you're only. Uh, uh, a couple of cases away from it all kicking off again. Well, yes, that's right. I mean, as we've unfortunately seen in Victoria, in Australia, uh, they had exactly that two cases um, of transmission linked to an isolation facility, and that sparked uh, quite a terrible outbreak over there. So I think um, there's a, a, a large number of countries now pursuing elimination, or you'd say um, uh, containment might be the term they'll use, but aiming to to have no cases. And uh, we're surrounded by islands in the Pacific that have no cases at all. Um, And, um, you know, in Asia, you've got, of course, um, 
mainland China, which is largely protecting 1.4 billion people. I mean, they have had an outbreak recently, which they've now contained. You've got um, Taiwan with 23, 24 million people, which has really done uh, the best job, I think, of any country at keeping the virus out and um, and controlling uh, cases within the country now. Um, and a number of other countries like Vietnam and Mongolia, um, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, they're, they're all um, heading in the same direction. And, and so is most of Australia, I should say. Most states in Australia are in the same position as New Zealand now. And, and therefore, uh, I, I suppose, how can we compare Ireland that has a land border with the UK is got a common travel area, a land border with Northern Ireland, uh, a, a common travel area with the UK, and is part of the European Union. Do you think New Zealand and Ireland are compatible? Yeah, it's, from what I've um, heard and read about Ireland, you um, are in a good position to um, contain and eliminate this virus if you choose to. Um, you may prefer to say um, you're going to carry on with the suppression approach, um, for months, maybe a year or, or longer, until there's vaccines and antivirals. And, I mean, every country has to decide for itself. But um, there are obviously huge benefits from eliminating the virus, and I think there are health benefits and economic benefits. And the health benefits are obvious. You just don't uh, have... Uh, No-one gets the virus anymore, and no-one's dying from it, um, and no-one's getting long-term effects from it. But actually, the other group in New Zealand, as well as public health people like me, who advocated for this approach, the other uh, very vocal advocates were the business community. because And our business leaders said we should uh, go for elimination, shut the borders, and um, also go into a very intense lockdown, because they could see the benefits of that. And within, um, you know, from beginning to end, it was about 75 days, and then the virus was gone. And, no and how, how bad did it get with you, Michael? Like, uh, we've had, uh, what is it, uh, somewhere between 25 and 30,000 confirmed cases. They say that's an underestimate because tests weren't available. And our death toll is, is sort of north of 2,500. How, how would your total figures compare? Oh, much less. Um, it's a little over 1,500 cases and 22 deaths in the country. Um, and that was because... Um, we acted very quickly, and we could see this pandemic coming. And um, when we saw that it was it was switching from just cases in uh, arrivals to local transmission, uh, basically we shut the country down. The government did, but with strong advocacy from public health people like myself and the business community. And basically, that um, the the virus. The transmission, we went up on this exponential curve for a period, and then it stopped. And then we carefully came out of lockdown um, over a period of weeks into a virus-free country. And and your t- testing and tracing system, tell us about that. Well, one of the reasons we had to do the lockdown right at the start was that our testing volumes were very low, and it was hard. It was slow. It was hard work building it up, and also our. Um, our uh, tracing and isolation system was was very poor because it just wasn't it, it wasn't operating at the right scale, and so we used those um, eight to ten weeks to really get those systems working very well. 
So, for instance, like we have a testing capacity of seven and a half thousand people a day. How would that compare to yours? I think in New Zealand, it's a bit more than that. I think they can do 12,000 tests a day, but they've never had to do that number. So uh, do you see a situation whereby for those who've gone for the suppression strategy that this will go on until a vaccine? Or what sort of timescale do you think? Well, if the virus is still circulating, basically you are stuck in that suppression mode. And, of course, if you take your foot off the brakes at all, then the virus comes back because that's just how it behaves. If you've got virus circulating in your population and if it's arriving with people from overseas in a regu- on a regular basis, you're just going to have to um, keep doing suppression and a whole lot of other measures. And I think one of the real problems is, of course, it easily gets into um, your residential care facilities where it's quite devastating for older people. So that's what happened in New Zealand. That's where all, most of our deaths occurred. Not that there were many, but it just becomes a really difficult problem to, to manage. Uh, and just dealing with the economics, before this struck, we'll say on the 1st of March, we had 2.4 million people at work in this country. It's estimated that about 1.1 million are on a pay subsidy of 85 cent in the euro or getting an unemployment high rate payment at 350. Um, the, the situation is that our exchequer can't sustain that in perpetuity. The country has to get back to work to pay our bills. What do you say to that? Well, basically, people are getting back to work in New Zealand because the internal economy is doing well. The only sector that, of course, is suffering is tourism, and that's quite big for New Zealand. But um, the internal tourism has really um, taken off, and uh, uh, I, I think most people feel that this current um, situation is, is manageable, and also they, they just feel it's, it's vastly preferable to uh, what's happening overseas, because basically in New Zealand we've taken control of the virus and got rid of it, um, rather than the virus running our country, which it's not doing now. But, but finally, I see a quote here from you in the New Zealand hub. New Zealand to quarantine people for months, maybe years. Is that true? That's, that's, well, I think um, as long as the virus is circulating globally, um, until there is a vaccine or good antivirals, we're going to have to keep managing our borders. So that's the, that's the problem, or okay. one, of the, one of the problems. But the, the hope is that more countries in our region we'll achieve elimination like New Zealand, and then we can eventually have quarantine-free travel with some countries. But unfortunately, it will be until there's a widely available vaccine for global use, which may be years away, we're still going to have have to have quarantine facilities for people coming back from some places. For instance, people coming from Latin America um, and um, Africa, for instance. And if they... uh, can get the virus under control globally, which I think is a huge challenge. But if, for example, um, we're we're now looking at um, uh, many Pacific islands which have no virus, uh, Taiwan, um, parts of Asia, and hopefully Australia in the foreseeable future uh, will be able to have quarantine-free travel with, with those countries. And that's all we've time for this week. We'll continue to bring you up to date with all the latest relating to COVID-19 here on Newstalk. You can subscribe to this podcast in Go Loud or wherever you get your podcasts from. But for me, Shane Beatty, bye-bye and take care.